Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm Jane Donahue. Today we take you to the College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor for a talk by award-winning paleoanthropologist Lee Berger. The title of today's talk is Cave of Bones, a true story of discovery, adventure, and human origins. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time, and it will be archived on our website, mainpublic.org. Click on radio to hear the program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. The program will also be available as a podcast. Introducing today's talk is National Geographic Society CEO Jill Tiefenthaler. Our mission at the National Geographic Society is to use the power of science, exploration, education, and storytelling to illuminate and protect the wonder of our world. And that mission, as you can see, exploration, since we started way back as a nonprofit in 1888, um, Exploration has been foundational to that mission. And today, it is a quite a loaded term, um, and rightly so. Um, exploration has a history that includes colonialism, racism, sexism, exploitation, extraction. And this includes the historic approach to exploration at National Geographic and our coverage of exploration as well. And today we own and acknowledge and apologize for the harm that we've done for this part of our history, a painful part of our history. But importantly, we are moving forward in a different way. Um, as the title of our conference is today, at National Geographic, we are reimagining exploration. So how are we doing that? I want to give you a couple examples, and then I'm going to invite a great example of that to the stage. First, we are supporting work and we're telling stories that were previously unknown and unacknowledged. Many of you were with us last year when Tara Roberts and Justin Dunavit took the stage and talked about their work to the, tell the stories of the 12 million enslaved Africans who were transported on 35,000 ships across the transit, on the transatlantic slave trade and that 1,000 of those ships wrecked and um, almost two million souls um, died in the Middle Passage. Tara, um, our uh, Explorer of the Year last year, um, learned about this story when she went to the Smithsonian African American History Museum and she saw uh, a, an exhibit on Divers with a Purpose, a group of black scuba divers who were diving to these shipwrecks um, to pay them homage and to study them. And she became determined to tell her that their story. And we have helped her tell that story with funding and platforms, including an amazing podcast um, called Into the Depths, and also putting uh, Tara last year on the cover of National Geographic magazine, the first black woman explorer to appear on the cover of National Geographic. We're also reimagining exploration by recognizing that not only um, does it matter what we are studying, but it matters who is doing the work and who is telling those stories. As uh, explorer Noel Koch um, said a year, um, my first year to me at National Geographic, if you want to change the story, you need to change the storyteller. And so we are incredibly proud to partner with Noel and his wife Pragna on a new program called Africa Refocused. And Africa Refocus is working to train and support and provide equipment, 
um, to Africans to make their own nature documentaries. Um, these are to tell Africa stories by Africans. And we are in the lat we are empowering their um, African um, also um, composers to actually do the music and score these films as well. So now they, a uh, uh, little over two years in, they produce 40 new films um, as part of Africa Refocused. And we're working hard also to find and support the talent from all backgrounds um, with the goal of building the most dynamic, diverse, and empowered group of change makers as our National Geographic explorers. And last year, we're really proud that over half of our grants went to women, and 70% um, of our new funding went to non-US citizens. So we're also reimagining exploration um, by um, only funding science, conservation, storytelling, and education products, projects that are done in collaboration with communities that value and learn from indigenous knowledge. We know that this a new approach, um, especially to conservation, um, is better work and much more sustainable protection. Our National Geographic Okavango Wilderness Project is a great example of this work. It is led by a team of six amazing explorers who you can see up on the screen here, an incredibly diverse team that includes people from Botswana. Um, it's led by Steve Boyce um, from South Africa, and it includes two explorers who are um, uh, G.B. Kato uh, and Water um, Salabasha, who you see on the screen, who are experts on using uh, guiding Makuros through the Okavanga Delta. They've lived their lives in the Delta and are contributing so much to that project. They're also working with local communities, learning from them um, how they have found balance in the Delta now for centuries, and we're making a long-term commitment there. This is not parachute science where we are coming in and going out. We've been there now for eight years and are actually building an endowment so that we will be there um, for the long haul to do this work. And then again, we're also reimagining exploration by redefining not just um, what we explore, but what we mean by exploration. Um, now, of course, it will continue to mean exciting things like going down to the depths of the ocean, as you'll hear from Sylvia tomorrow night, as well as going out to space, as we heard uh, about uh, Moriba's work the other night. But we're also widening our aperture to um, include different ideas of exploration. As we heard um, over the last couple days, exploration is really about seeing things that are new to us in new ways. So it includes using tools like AI, we heard about yesterday, telescopes and satellites, tools that help us to, as Christian said yesterday, see things we didn't know were there. We're also naming creatives as explorers. Maya Lin, the famous architect, has recently become an explorer at large at National Geographic. Um, because as Amanda said yesterday too, sometimes our creatives can imagine and see what many of us cannot. So because we are reimagining exploration and making it more inclusive of, of various approaches, supporting and elevating diverse voices, and using new tools like eDNA, AI, drones, I truly believe we are entering the greatest age of exploration in history. And I am so pleased to introduce one explorer who is really embodying the reimagining of exploration in ways that are not only challenging and transforming his field, 
but also um, our understanding of what it means to be human. So please uh, join me in welcoming to the stage re a renowned paleoanthropologist and National Geographic explorer at large, Lee Berger. So welcome, Lee. Are we good? So welcome, Lee. Um, so Lee has been with us at National Geographic for 25 years. Plus, yeah. Okay. So uh, tell the story of your first grant from National Geographic, Lee. Now, I, she's not going to want me to tell the story of the first grant. I know because everyone—it's a legend at National Geographic. Um, I was a young PhD student, and I was involved in this discovery of, of footprints. And these were very ancient footprints at that time. We said that they were the oldest footprints or traces of anatomically modern humans, about 117,000 years old, found at Saldana Bay in South Africa. And so I was a, I hadn't even got my PhD yet, and I was a graduate student, and I wrote this cheeky, daring grant to the National Geographic Society for this gigantic, life-changing grant of $1,500. <laughs> and I got it. You know, I mailed it off, and then I got a letter back, and then I got a letter back. And then a check came in the mail in U.S. dollars to South Africa. And I didn't even know how to cash it. And so I put it in my pocket and kept it with me because, I, you know, this was going to be life-changing treasure. And I washed those pants. <laughs> and I had to write back to George Stewart and say, I washed the check. And then, a, you know, a month and a half later, another check arrives, but it created much mirth. We do love that story at National <laughs> Geographic, and we're glad we sent a second check, because that was the first of many grants to Lee and his incredible work. So, Lee, I talked a little bit, and our, our title of our um, institute this week is Reimagining Exploration, and um, I'd love for you to talk about how in your 25 years, and really in these last years, um, how, you've, how you're reimagining your own work. So when I started uh, in this field, 1989, first in East Africa, then down to South Africa, I wanted to find fossils. And you have to imagine that the field looked very different at that time. Uh, not only did it look different in the profile of who was doing the science, which was really seven or eight white men in Africa that were the explorers and, and pretty much no one else, almost no women, uh, with the exception of the great Mary Leakey and a couple of others. Um, there was also a generational gap. There were almost no offspring of those people because it had been a very competitive science. As that journey continued, um, I, I encountered things like the peer review process, the closed clubbiness of this field, which was really the, the fossil finders became all-powerful. You dictated who got to play, who got to see uh, the fossils. That dictated the pathway and course of your career. And you've got to remember, this was an age, by the way, when there were probably significantly more scientists than objects that we studied. And now, can you imagine the nature of a competitive field like that? And, and who controlled access to the goods? As, as we went through, I began to uh, 
rebel, as I became in charge of things like the South African fossil collections, as I rose further in my career, I began to rebel a little bit to that. The idea that, that it shouldn't be clubby. We should have things like open access. I became involved in the early days of things like Wikipedia, and because we knew Wikipedia would fail, we, I, I, I joined with Larry Sanger, one of the founders, to form Citizendium, which failed, and, and, and went through this and began to see it. And then, the, and then life-changing discoveries. The first one, 2008, Australopithecus sediba. I hit the gold mine of discovery. Two skeletons. Two skeletons had never been found together of ancient human relatives at the site of Malapa that I named Australopithecus sediba. Well, my fun son, who was nine years old, Matthew, actually found them, but I take credit for that. <laughs> and I got to build for the first time my own team, which rapidly grew into the big team. We had the greatest time of my, our lives. I had multiple papers in the journal Science. I had three covers of Science with my fossils. For those of you who don't know, that's like a rock star being on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine when your fossils are on the front. Living the scientific dream, then I realized, you know, five years into this that I, I'd stopped exploring when my son had said, Dad, I found a fossil. That resulted in the discoveries that you're going to hear about tonight, the discoveries of Homo naledi and other things that were life-changing, and I lived again in this remarkable rut of success where, you know, we were just barreling down the road of changing science, and then COVID came. And I know COVID was horrible and everything, but I had an incredibly good COVID. And the reason that I and my colleagues did is because we were trapped in South Africa. I had invented a program of exploration that was probably the absolute worst thing you could do or design during a global pandemic. I had a flexible program where I would fly in the best and brightest in the world the moment a discovery is made. They would collaborate with teams and then they'd fly off. And I was working in tight underground spaces where if you got stuck, we had to send in numbers of people to rescue you. It was a disaster. My preparation itself was designed where we worked in big areas with dozens of people together. Shut me down. And I had to figure out what to do. And so what I did was figure out a way that we didn't have to work underground. I actually developed a way to take a cave from underground and build it on the surface so we could actually work together. And I looked around, and I said, but who's going to do this? And I had all these young South Africans who were trapped there with me. And they had always been kind of held back. They were all young PhDs and stuff and didn't have a way forward. And I think we got some of them on pictures yes. here, but didn't have a way forward. And I put them in charge. I said, you're going to do this. And People around the world thought this was crazy, letting these young people into the front of what would turn out to be an extraordinary new discovery. During COVID, we were the only team in the world operating for at least eight to 12 months, the only ones in the world, because we were there and that these young people rose to the task of this and turned a new discovery of a new hominid site into the next big discovery, which you'll hear about probably later this year early next year. And now we've seen this whole generation of African scientists that are incredibly diverse, that are in charge now with their own sites, National Geographic funding quite a lot of them, and 
taking off and now building their own programs around ideas of open access and science. So, you know, it was a transformational moment for me because I'd always thought I'd designed this perfect open access project without understanding I'd actually built a glass ceiling for the scientists I was trying to promote. And now COVID broke that. And incredibly productive, right? Amazing. And so to that point, um, you also during this time had your own big transformation. Um, so talk to, set the stage. Everyone's going to hear, uh, see, I hope, stay for Cave of Bones tonight. Um, but set the stage for these um, new discoveries. Talk about, um, so there was some weight loss. <laughs> some new, uh, new uh, adventures of your own. But set the stage for the discovery and um, also the significance. So Homo naledi, just as a primer, is a small-brained hominid. It's, uh, it's, we don't know how it quite relates to humans. It's very primitive. It has a brain slightly larger than a chimpanzee. It walks on two legs, and that's about where the relationship stops with living humans, other than sharing sort of shared ancestral things. It's got ape-like shoulders, slightly elongated arms, but as you move distally down its body towards its feet and hands, it becomes more and more human-like, except its feet and hands are extremely curved, has these long prehensile thumbs. Its chest is ape-like. Its spine looks like a cross between a tiny Neanderthal and more ancient hominids. It's got ancient pelvis, like the Lucy pelvis. It looks all over like it should be two or three million years ago. It actually existed, we now know, between about 250,000 and 330,000 years ago. Now that sounds like a lot of time to you guys, but that is just yesterday. And what was remarkable about that discovery was that it violated one of the sort of basic principles that we had thought that large-brained humans and our immediate ancestors, archaic homo sapiens, had wiped out everything in Africa. The African story was over the moment big brains began to appear six, seven, eight hundred thousand years or so ago, because big brains always win. And then this hominid was sitting right in the middle of southern Africa, right at a time where we thought that only modern humans existed and that they were developing modernity. That we're seeing the early stages of the infinite toolkit of a few, a little bit after that, the first art, the first symbols, meaning making symbols, quite a bit after that first burial of the dead. During COVID and, and just before and then during it and after it, we'd made a discovery. In these deep, dark chambers, which you'll all see tonight, um, we discovered what we thought were burials. We thought that we discovered graves, that this non-human species had dug holes and put it dead in this remote chamber. Um, that was extraordinary. And we were working on this, and we were getting ready to publish it through 2022, and there were some contradictions, some problems. And this is an extreme environment, folks, and for those of you who stay, you will see just how terrible this environment is. The, but to give you an idea, the space where this discovery is made, only 46 humans had ever been able to make it in there. And it's so extreme that if someone was injured down there, a critical injury where they could not get themselves out, we were going to send a doctor with tents to live with them until they could get themselves out. That's how extreme it is. And 
I could not let what I thought was going to be the biggest discovery of my life go with these seemingly geological uh, contradictions. And they're, they're kind of minor, they would sound like to you, but they were really important to me, knowing how critically this was and is scrutinized. And so I secretly decided in early 22, 2022 that I was going to try to make an attempt to get in there. Now, I will tell you that I was rather chunky at that time. Um, uh, I was uh, right now about 50 pounds more than I am right now, and I lost 55 pounds uh, over the course of about six months without telling anyone why I was going to do this because my wife is a doctor and she would have killed me. Both of my children have been in there because I used to send my children in before I would send any scientists in. Um, <laughs> It's not funny. I was going for father of the year. Now, um, now, the reason I did that, by the way, that's an interesting side story. The reason I, 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 I sent my kids in the first time, my son, I needed someone I could trust that I knew could see it. He was 15 years old, so he's plenty age of consent and everything. And, and I sent him in to take the original pictures and to lead the first of the so-called underground astronauts in. I sent my daughter in to test the safety equipment that we were trying to use. Um, because I wasn't going to send other people's daughters in if I wasn't willing to risk in these spaces, because the first six people were underground astronauts. And so I lost 55 pounds, and then I got in. And you'll, you'll see the outcome of that. I lived. I'll, I'll tell you the <laughs> secret story of that. And the uh, most horrible, most wonderful thing of my entire life. I mean, extraordinary discoveries were made. And, um, and I don't regret it. I'll never go back. I injured myself very badly trying to get out, and uh, but did get out. So. so you have a little video to show some of that space, don't you? Oh, I do, I do. Um, and you know, it's uh, whoops, oh, there we go. So this is right after you get by the bad part. The bad part is a 12-meter chute labyrinth that narrows to seven and a half inches in places with an average width of about 10 inches. Now, for those of you who don't imagine what that is, most of that space is smaller than my chest is from back to front, and you cannot turn your head left or right because you're wearing a helmet as you go down. So, and you, it's, it's not a, a, a tube, it's a straight down. When you enter this relatively luxurious space, it's about two and a half meters long by three and a half meters in length, so like 12 feet in length. This space here you're going through to give you an idea, this is between one burial chamber we call the hill antechamber, and um, into the next one is averaging probably about a foot wide, this, this passage here, and it's about 30 feet long until you enter this, and by the way, this is really cool, National Geographic had this done, and you're some of the first human beings on earth to ever see this, which, which is augmented virtual reality done by two explorers at uh, National Geographic uh, carriages. Um, uh, and, and this, what you're looking at and zooming in on now, is a burial of a non-human species. You can see the oval that was dug, a body, those, those rough things you're seeing are the bones of a body in a fetal position within that space. And if you look in this light, and I hope you can see it on the big screens, you can actually see the oval outline that was dug into the floor of this. And a body was carried in there by this individual's relatives. 
and then placed there in this extraordinarily extreme environment 300 feet from the front of a cave 250,000 years ago. Um, that's extraordinary. You're witnessing the first time in all of human history that we've witnessed something that was, is as complex as us in its idea of, oh, by the way, and there are more of them. This is ground-penetrating radar. That was not easy to get in there. And those darker areas and such are indicating where others are buried in there. Some of them, by the way, with stones placed over the top of where they were buried, flat stones. This was done when Homo sapiens, if our current evidence is right, were a bunch of hulking brutes on the landscape, big brain and all. And this other species with a tiny supercharged brain was doing what we thought until this moment was exclusive to us. And that's kind of cool. Very cool. And, and by the way, working with Nat Geo, we're going to put that up at some point in the not-distant future, and you're going to be able to go there yourself. Because one of the important things to us is that everything we do must be replicable and verifiable, not just by other scientists, but by all of you, too, by the whole world. So, Lee, you mentioned other scientists, and not surprisingly, the um, paper was met with um, controversy. So um, talk, explain to this group why the controversy, first of all, and then let's talk a little bit about how science is done and how you're challenging some of those traditional methods um, of peer review and sure. et cetera. Sure. So not surprisingly, when we uh, put this out just a few weeks ago, the, the, some of you may have seen as it, as it came out, um, there's a small vocal community of archaeologists and paleoanthropologists that didn't like it. They didn't like it for a variety of reasons. Some said they didn't believe the evidence. Others said that they just wouldn't believe it because only humans bear it. And you have to remember that we knew that there was going to be a component that reacted that way. Human exceptionalism. The idea that our story is a linear one that's been built over time, almost in a biblical sense, where X begat Y, begat Z, begat B, begat A, and we stood at the front of that T-shirt model, you've all seen it, right? That T-shirt model line, and that's where we belong, is so deeply entrenched into not only our psyches and the way we tell stories about ourselves, but into scientists' minds at uh, themselves. And one of the reasons for that is that a lot of the sciences we have built won't work if it's not like that. Archaeology, the idea that we can tell what um, species made what tools, is almost dependent on there being only one species at any one time in, in the past. The idea that because we don't find and will likely never find, spoiler, we did, uh, a tool in the hand of a dead species. It just doesn't happen. And so you can understand how having a very easy to tell narrative, and if any of you, and I'm sure some of you have either been in an anthropology class or teach them even, since we're in an academic environment here, have, will see that while we talk bushes and, and trees, when we teach, uh, when we talk about evolution, we teach it like 
uh, Lucy, gave rise to early Homo, gave rise to Homo habilis, gave rise to Homo erectus, gave rise to Neanderthals and us. That's not a tree. That's a ladder. And it's absolutely not how it happened. When you drop in that one of the most sacred ideas that humans have a moment that we were until this time timing to a point of about 80,000 to 150,000 years ago when something happened to us. The narrative of we, we had some sort of cognitive shift and all of a sudden you see the infinite toolkit. Everything's a tool up here. You see meaning-making scratches and marks appearing, first geometric, then later the kind of art, much later the kind of art that we're familiar with. And you see other things like shell adornment and later, around 80 to 120,000 years, the first burial of the dead. When we dropped in that we are hypothesizing that Homo naledi does all of that, went over like a lead balloon with a small group. The rest are working on it. But also we chose to do it in newer models. Now, I have played the academic game for a very long time. I've been in this field for 34 years, and believe it or not, even though if you like Google me, which I'm sure some of you are doing, you'll see Lieberger, controversial scientist, I'm probably one of the most conventional scientists you'll ever meet. I have probably, and this is not meant to, I'm not bragging here, I'm just stating a fact because it's important to that narrative, I probably am amongst the most published living scientists in critical journals like Science and Nature. I probably have more papers as an author in those journals than almost any other living scientist. Um, or at least I'm in the very, very top uh, centile of that. So I've played the game of where you publish, how you publish in the conventional way. And I don't like it. Um, I, I think there are critical flaws in that. And, and some of them are with the history and narrative of how we scientists think about our own field and how to, there's, there's probably a bunch of people in a academia here, but you've all heard of the peer review system, right? Someone tell me how long the peer review system's been around. Just guess, you can shout it out. 1950, huh? 80 years. Who said that? Ah, see, darn it. There's someone who knows. The, actually, the peer review as we use it today has been around since the early 70s. Um, it first started in cell. It's probably been applied in my field of paleoanthropology and archaeology only since the late 80s or early 90s at the longest. That's peer review. This thing that is supposed to be you send your paper in, the editor will choose uh, qualified people, they'll review it, and then they go back and they, they, they give you advice on how to make the thing better. Or actually what they've begun doing is they tell you whether you can publish it or not. They, they will reject it or a gatekeep from doing it. That was never intended for that. It was built as a model that was supposed to assist editors as fields became hyper-specialized. So that things like biology, where it was first peered in the journal Cell, that's where the first peer reviews occurred, could actually not make critical errors and mistakes. It was never designed to be a gatekeeping. It was never designed to have, how many papers do you think are produced Peer-reviewed papers are produced every year. It's in excess of two million. How many journals, peer-reviewed journals, do you think exist today? It's in excess of 30,000. We can't even count them. It was never designed for that. 
It was designed for a world, it was also never designed for multi-authored publications. When I first got in this field, I remember being pulled aside by the great physicist Friedel Selshoff. He says, Lee, you're doing great work, but you don't have enough single-authored papers. You're never going to get anywhere. You'll only ever be judged on that. If we see a single-authored paper today, it's either a review article or it's a crackpot. Because today's science is massive and multidisciplinary. On these last papers, we put in 37 scientists, co-authored it. And they're peer-reviewed by three or four. You get where the problem's going in that? And so I think we're in this great new age of trying to understand how we deal with this foundationally changed science that the founding fathers of things like peer review, and it has, it has important roles, but it was never designed for this. And most of the people who founded it are still alive. That's how recent it is. And we need to change it. I actually, you know, it's funny, I've been talking with colleagues. I actually think we're going to fix it with things like artif the, the, the dreaded AI. I actually think that actually might be how you sort things out in the future as we teach it to help us weed through two million plus peer-reviewed articles a year, plus all the other science. But I also think there are new ways that we're going to be able to communicate science. I mean, the journal eLife is playing with really cool ways of, of doing that. Not perfect yet, but we'll get there. Well, I love that you're challenging things. It's not very often that people who are winning the game change the rules. So uh, kudos, Lee, for shaking things up. Um, so. And you've also, you know, really gotten out there and shared, in a, you know, branching beyond sort of the typical ways scientists communicate. And you're in a Netflix uh, doc, and we have a wonderful new book that's incredibly accessible. Um, talk about the importance of that work um, to you, how you view your contributions in science. So when I, th that all kind of started for me with when I. I very quickly rose to a very powerful position, um, way too young. They appointed me as the chairman of paleoanthropology at the University of the Witwatersrand in South Africa when I was 32 years old. Um, it was like a death sentence because I was way too young and they were, do, you know, it was the Peter principle that universities always do. They always promote you to the highest level that you quit performing at. And um, I was, young and in this, and I had come from a non-traditional background. I did not go to an Ivy, well, I went later to one Ivy League for a little, for one course, but I didn't come from that. I came from Georgia Southern University, places like that. And I had not gone through that thing. I wasn't academically related to um, a lot of these other people and that sort of thing. And so I had seen this clubbiness. I tried to break it a little bit by opening access to the collections to anyone who wanted to work on them. That went against the rules, and they tried to stop me and kill me at that point academically. Then I survived that. Um, and then I went through that big period where technology allowed us to share things, and I tried to share things with uh, open things, and that group tried to kill me again. I sound like that scene in Monty Python, you know, where you build the castle in the swamp and it falls down, and you build it again and it falls down, but the third one stayed took me about five times or six times to stay. But, but as we've done that, the world has moved towards that. Moved towards the idea of 
opening access to things, to seeing that we may not know how value is created, but we know it's better when everyone can see it and test it. And isn't that the foundation of science? The foundation of science, the way I was taught it, is it's got to be replicable and verifiable. And how do you do that unless you share the data? Not just what you want to share, but all of it. And so we have every fossil we ever publish, everything we do is freely available to download, and you can 3D print it at home, and if you don't have your 3D printer at home, ask your kids, they'll get it done for you. And at places like Morphosource and other areas, we are making things with National Geographic's help like the cave accessible with augmented virtual reality, so you can explore it, you can see what we're testing. Making data accessible makes it verifiable, it makes our hypothesis refutable, and that's going to make a better science. Thank you. Let's open it up to the audience and see what questions we have. I think there are some microphones. And I see a question right in the back there, Sean. Thank you. This is, <laughs> this is incredible for me. Uh, my soul is just riddled with happiness. Uh, the, um, I come from um, curiosity um, at birth, but uh, gone to uh, nano-size thinking and, and work, um, Oxford nanopore, um, is um, doing things that make uh, lots of your work a lot easier. What do you have um, working or do you know about working with the genome um, to, to um, David Sinclair's book um, has led me to believe that I think I can live to 140. Um, and, and I come from the medical uh, community and um, was on a team that developed a product um, that took transphenoidal hypophysectomies into existence and to be able to save 99% um, uh, of the people that get the surgery versus 60% prior to its, its development. What, what, what do you see? Firstly, it's an honor to meet you. Um, thank you for that. Um, I, I have to be careful here because I've just talked all about open access and I'm not going to tell you stuff. Um, the, we, the age of molecular sciences and their impact on all fields of paleontology, but I think most particularly paleoanthropology, human origins, is profound and is going to be foundational within the next generation. It is allowing us to take what was a fossil record and turn it into a living record. And we are throwing everything at the science of molecular studies. Um, from ancient DNA, but not only that. That's kind of the that's kind of the, the brand of molecular sciences. But ancient proteins uh, are are stronger. They survive better, and they give you similar but different uh, information. And they're, but they're easier to get. 
um, and don't require gigantic labs and all of that kind of stuff. And other areas of the molecular sciences, isotopes and other areas, are transforming our field. It's turning it from what was, I would argue, without insult, stamp collecting, and I was part of that. We'd find a skull and put it on a shelf and tell you what it is, to a science that suddenly was beginning to have abundance and could actually test the kind of questions of variation that we discussed um, to a real science where we can bring those hypotheses and fossils together, add molecular data, and come out with re real results. I will tell you this, we're winning that game. I will tell you this, that within the next year-ish, inside of that, long inside of that, I hope, depending on the peer review process, um, <laughs> that you will hear about some of the most extraordinary discoveries related to things like Homo naledi, Sediba, other fossils across this planet that are mind-blowing. And they told us how wrong we were getting the story, how entrenched we were in that narrative, and we were missing things like culture that the molecular sciences can lead to. Can you, let, me, let me tell you how profound this is. We can now take a cup of soil out of a cave, filter it down, and tell you every animal that was in that cave in all of history. We may not even know the species because it might not exist in our banks, but we'll know it's there. We'll know it's related to. That's so freaking cool. You suddenly don't need the bones. Or better yet, in our case, you can like leave the bones there for the next generation and gain all this out of it. You guys are going to be blown away by what we've discovered. I just can't tell you right now. Yeah. So stay tuned, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, right here. The question would be is that in this climate change time that we're having, how has it benefited uh, the discoveries that are now being found as it changes? So that's a great question. I mean, I told you the story about COVID and the pandemic, and, you know, one can argue that that's related to not only human overpopulation and whatever else we're doing and the things that we're doing in the world to the world. I guess where you're going is it also changes landscapes. It causes things like erosion. It causes, you know, we've seen the effects in our era of chemistry changes in water, which increase erosion, some of which is good and some of which is not good. Most of it's bad, as usually most of these things are. Um, what it's going to do, though, uh, in some ways, though, is I think there is an empowerment part that's coming that's not only being driven by things like the changes that are occurring with the environments, population distributions and resources, but also with a shift in attitude with places like National Geographic. And here, you want to talk about reimagining exploration. One of the things that I will stand like a preacher at the pulpit every Sunday and say to you is we need to build scientific resources where the discoveries are likely to be made. We need to empower endemic indigenous science. And what I mean by that is my team and I have been lauded as 
the, you know, one of these great discoveries. We have found thousands of fossils. We have found more individual fossils in the last decade or so than in the entire history of paleoanthropology prior to that, just our teams. And I go, it isn't magic. We're there all the time. I actually, I've challenged actually Jill to let's do this math and Alex Moen to do this math. I bet you I'm not actually that good because I suspect when you look at other teams working across Africa, they're usually only in the field for about two months a year. And they usually find, you know, give or take, although often they don't publish these, you know, two dozen or so fossils every time of these hominids, and we get all told how these areas aren't as rich as the ones we're working in, um, and that, that ours are different. I bet you if you do the math where we're working 12 months a year, times those numbers, they're probably outperforming us. We're just there over decades. That's the empowerment of science built there, our laboratories built there, our teams are there. We're able to work all the time. And guess what? When you work longer and you work hard, you get more. It's just math. <laughs> and, and I think that, that that's, it, that's a kind of product of not just climate change. And I'm taking the idea of shifting to answering a question I'm very passionate about. I think that's going to change the world. Keolu was talking about the other night, we need genetics labs in every country near where the questions we're asking are, being run by the people who understand those cultures, places, and can ask those questions. Um, we're building with Nat Geo and others and Carnegie Science and others mass specs in Africa so we can do these mo molecules immediately, instantly, and at fractions of the cost of building that lab at Harvard. And, and you know, that's change, kind of climate change. I, I think also there is sort of geographical change that goes with climate change. I, I think we haven't really explored that yet, but I do know places like Arabia and stuff are, in fact, benefiting from the changes that are going on in the ability to explore, except when it gets really, really, really hot like it's been getting. Question here? Yes. Can you share with us the moment where you discovered that Homo naledi was not just disposing of bodies, but it was actually a purposeful burial? I was, I was sitting in a command center looking through a screen, which just killed me because for the last seven and a half years, that's all I'd ever seen is a digital image. This was before I actually got in. And Dr. Kanelwe Moliapane was sitting next to me. And we were just talking, and I was watching, as we used to do, these underground astronauts excavating on these cameras. And that day, they'd done something different. And this is a really important lesson for people. Shift your position because of view all the time, every time. Because they had moved a camera that I had set up, well, I had them set up, I'd never been there, that looked over the excavation so I could kind of watch their fingers work and watch the front so I could talk them through things that I saw. They'd moved it to behind them, out of the way. So it's just kind of a wide shot. And these were really sophisticated, off-the-shelf security cameras. So they weren't sophisticated at all. And, but they had infrared and, and color. And they, they, they work. And at one moment, one of the excavators leaning over that feature that you saw, they leaned forward. And as they did, they blocked the camera and it flicked to black and white, you know, that infrared black and white. And all of a sudden, from seeing this color, 
I was watching, and I could suddenly see the dug outline of the feature. I could see it as clear as day. I realized it was a hole that had been dug, and suddenly my mind went, wait, they dug 15 centimeters down. This thing has depth, and there's the outline. You could actually see the disturbed dirt that they'd done. And I turned to Kenny, and I said, it's a feature. And she said, what are you seeing? And I took and I drew my finger line around it, and I said, I think it's grave. And so I called them up, for, and she said, I agree. I, and she's an expert in that area as well. And so I called them up on the intercom, and I said, I said, I think it's a feature you're digging. Now, you got to remember, they risk their lives to get in there. It takes like an hour and a half every day to stage in there. It's horrible. You've just about died to get in there, no matter how small or big or whatever you are. And you're working, and your face is this far from this. You can never see. You can't get more than about a meter from this thing. So you never are seeing the whole picture. And both of them went, we disagree. And I said, look, it's, I tried to talk to them. They said, no, it's not. And so I turned the intercom off, and I turned to Kenilway, and I talked to them, and I said, you know, if this is a grave, if it's a feature of any kind, we need to stop, because archaeology, despite what anyone tells you, is destructive. Once you remove the evidence, even with technology and the kind of 3D recording we do and the photogrammetry, it's gone. And I knew that we would need to be able to cut across that, and I said, okay. And I turned and I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop them, and they're going to hate me. And so I went back on the intercom and I said, you know, I'm using executive authority here. I'm pulling you out. Didn't make me very popular with them. It, um, and it, you know, because they had to take like two hours to get out and all that. But it was the right thing to do. How did you know to go into that cave in the first place? Was it uh, science, technology, or did you have a dream vision? Or <laughs> uh, did you just stumble upon it? I'll, I'll talk about dream vision in, in a moment because it's not in the Netflix movie, but a, a weird thing happened to me. But um, uh, uh, there's actually a great Nova PBS National Geographic Channel documentary called um, um, it, what was it called? I forgot what it's called. Anyone remember what it's called? It was called Oh Dawn of Humanity. Um, that was done at the time, which actually goes through that. It's on YouTube for free. You can download it and that and watch it. Fantastic documentary because they were they, they were there with us. But the short story is is that um, when I realized I kind of had an epiphany that I'd quit exploring. I was in the middle of the Sediva thing. Um, I had created this map, this Google map, funded by a National Geographic expedition project that was of all these cave sites, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, that were really just doorways into the underworld. And I'd never explored them because the moment Dad, you know, the moment Matt said, Dad, I found a fossil, I'd won the paleoanthropology lottery and I quit. And, you know, it's like that old joke that... You know, it's, it, it's very unlikely, it's, it's impossible to win the lottery twice, but it's certain if you don't buy another lottery ticket. Um, exploration is the lottery ticket for us. And so uh, I brought on first a former student of mine named Pedro Boshoff, who was a caving buddy of mine in the 90s to go through these doorways into the underworld, because it was a myth at that time that anything underground was going to be too young and only the eroded older caves were on the surface. He was physiologically inappropriate to get into most of these small caves. That means he's too fat. And 
I, uh, we enlisted together these two amateur cavers, Rick Hunter and Steve Tucker, who took that map and then they went at it like ferrets. They were highly physiologically appropriate <laughs> and were young enough to be, you know, kind of stupid and go in places. <laughs> and um, on, on September 13th, uh, 2013, they went into one of the most explored caves in the world um, and found a climbed dragons back and went down this terrible thing that I've been describing earlier and you'll see tonight um, and, uh, and saw bones on the floor. Brought me the pictures and when I opened them up, there was a thing I never thought I'd see in my life. There was an ancient hominid lying on the surface of a cave. They described the situation to me. We celebrated. I sent them home and it I sat up till 2 a.m. looking at this, just cannot believe what I see, and I picked up the phone and I called the head of missions at National Geographic, and who was Terry Garcia, and he answered the phone even though he had caller ID, and I never really understood that. <laughs> and I said, you know, we're, I said these words, I, I said, you're near computer, I sent him a picture, and I said, if you are ever gonna believe in me, believe in me right now. And he did. And we discovered the richest hominid site ever discovered in history. Wait, do you <laughs> want to say a little bit about the art or etchings as well? We haven't we talked mostly yeah, about the so, burial. So when I got in there, um, on my personal journey into that cave, I had decided I wasn't going to take any pictures. I wasn't going to take video because, oh my gosh, I had seen this thing through a video screen forever. And there is something about looking at things through a lens that changes the way you look at it. And not in a good way all the time. So I decided to narrate it. I would only narrate the journey. And the reason I did that, because I knew it would make me describe it to an unseen audience in intimate detail. That audience was, of course, myself. And... So I started this narration, and I immediately started realizing that we had missed things. The 46 people who had been in before me, who were all mission-focused, remember. So there's no, no blame here. It's actually my fault. And, you know, they were going in. You go through death to find to do a job and get out alive. I'm an archaeologist. I looked at ancient doorways all my life. What sits around ancient doorways? Same thing sits around modern doorways. Signs of what they mean. And as I looked to the left of this, I saw these carvings, triangles, equal signs, crosses, upside down, right side up, a fish-shaped thing with an X in it, discolored by something, equal signs, hashtags, ladders. They were carved symbols on the wall of burial chamber that no one had seen before. We'd find them on the other side, too. You'll see that. You'll actually see that happen because there was a Netflix photographer with me who was sitting with me doing it. And this is the part that's not in the show. And it's really... Uh, I'm embarrassed to actually recount it because it sounds a little crazy. But as I saw them, I carry with me a... Uh, I carry with me a, uh, a UV light because... UV, lots of minerals fluoresce under, underground, and some fossils collect those minerals, and they fluoresce too. So I always carry it with me. It's kind of a trick I have. 
And so as I asked everyone to turn all the lights off, including the camera lights, and I flicked this thing on at these symbols to see if they would fluoresce. And as they did, they popped off the wall and floated in space away from me. You ever seen like Queen's Gambit or A Beautiful Mind where the... It happened to me. <laughs> and it so shocked me that I couldn't even speak for a moment. And then I had to flick it off to make it stop. Um, and by the way, I know why it happened. It's not a supernatural experience in, in that way. It's because I created a light shift moment in my optic nerves. And the way your uh, eyes process that through to your brain is very similar to the effect that happens when you look in a rearview mirror at night and you can see the light move, and yet you can see the headlight clearly stationary or moving in the opposite direction. You've probably all seen that sort of visual effect. That's occurring because of the way your eye transmits these optical images into your brain. It's called a light shift. But um, I know why it happened. It freaked me out and still freaks me out today. Um, it was, you know, it changed me deeply. And maybe that's what they're trying to do with this stuff. You know, viewing that in firelight creates the same sort of uh, a transmission of images and can create that same sort of optical thing. But, wow, that was a cool moment. Amazing. I was just going to ask, you described this as a burial site. So why were the bones on the surface? I mean, what kind of made them, you know, be exposed like that? So the very first bones on the surface, what we believe is happening is that these are shallow pit burials. So imagine they're like 35 centimeters deep or so. Like you dig a shallow hole and put a body in just deep enough to cover the body. But if you then cover that body with the dirt that came from the hole, what happens? You get the same thing that happens in any cemetery after you put a coffin in. You get a mound, right? And then what happens? The body deteriorates, rots, and the mound compresses. And if you've mismeasured that by this much, the body begins to get exposed over time. And what it looks like we were seeing are the first deflations of that, those bones as they were coming out. Some of them have been shifted around a little bit, and that likely is either by us or by Homo naledi itself or insects or things that could reach that chamber. But no other animals really are found in that space. So this was really a naledi space. You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today's program featured a talk by award-winning paleoanthropologist Lee Berger, who recently spoke at the College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor. If you missed part of the program or want to listen again, you can also find it on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on Radio to access this program and many other archived Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine, and Speaking in Maine is produced by Sam Tracy and me, Jane Donahue. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.